Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations from me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to have Teresa Bartolotta here with us um, today. She is the founder and host of the Safe Harbor podcast um, for parents of children with disabilities. And so I'm excited to have her on today and just share her story and her journey and how she's turned just her hardship into something great to serve and love other families. So Teresa, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited that you have started this podcast because you are providing such a service to this community. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. Um, Will you tell us kind of your special needs journey and how you became a parent of a child with disabilities? Oh, sure. So the first thing I should say is that I also work with children with disabilities. So I was a young speech pathologist working with children with disabilities and loving my work. And my husband and I built our family. We had two children. And about a year after our second child, our daughter was born, we began to notice that she was not continuing to develop. She had said a few words. She had been playing with toys and looking at books. And all of a sudden, she wasn't doing those things anymore. And it was a very subtle change. So we kind of, you know, had some questions, but they they started to grow and grow. And then we, we just couldn't ignore it anymore. And so that started us on a process of a lot of testing. And my my mama heart was really struggling uh, during this whole process because since I had a professional background, I knew about different children with disabilities and I was seeing things in my daughter that I saw in the children with whom I worked. And so for me, that was particularly troubling because All of a sudden, I really felt like the ground was pulled out from under me, and I found myself looking at textbooks and saying, what could be wrong? What could be be wrong? And she was evaluated and diagnosed at about 18 months of age as being developmentally delayed and autistic-like. And that was her working diagnosis, I would say, probably for about 10 years. Uh, We saw tons of specialists. We got her right involved in special education. And we just never felt that we had our finger on the right diagnosis. Uh, She wasn't like any other child with autism I'd ever met. A lot of the children in her classes who did have autism were making progress and she really wasn't. And so it was a real journey of about 10 years of searching for the right label. And when Lisa was 11, I had read that the gene that causes Rett syndrome, that's R-E-T-T, Um, had been found. And I had been reading about Rett syndrome as I was looking for what could she have wrong with her. And I had asked a neurologist about that. And and this was a very prominent neurologist in New York City. And I asked him, I thought, do you think she might have Rett syndrome? And he said to me, you don't want that. She, She probably doesn't have it. And most of those girls lose their ability to walk 
and they die before they're 20. And my daughter was walking at that point. And she still is though. And I was horrified and I thought, wait, you know, I, it's not my choice to want one label over another. And if she has something we need to know, and that will help us. Well, fast forward a few years later, which was 1999, the gene for Rett syndrome was found. I read about it and I thought I'm going to take her to get tested. And at that point they were testing in two places in the country in Texas and at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And we lived in the Northeast. So we took her to Johns Hopkins and her genetic test came back positive. And at 11 years of age, we had the name of the disability that she had. And we essentially had to grieve all over again because now we had to recognize that this is what she had and everything that came with it. But there was also a great sense of relief that we had the name and now we could join a community and really share like stories with other families. And we knew we would get support and we did. And it, we were then able to kind of look ahead to see what lay ahead. And I'm so grateful for that because not that long after her diagnosis, she ended up needing scoliosis surgery and she also developed grand mal seizures. And we knew exactly how to proceed with both of those because we had the right label. And that was really powerful. Um, have you gone back and hit that doctor in the face? Fires <laughs> me up. Why would you say that to somebody? I know, I know. I really, um, I did go back and see that doctor another time. So you know, you can have your fantasy of what you want to do, and then you can have the reality. And so, I've actually done this a couple of times with going back to a professional and trying to educate them in a positive way so that the families they encounter in the future would suffer a little bit less as a result. So in a way, I'm kind of trying to pay it a little bit forward. And there have been people who paid it, you know, forward before that I've, I've benefited from. So, so it's, sure. yeah. and, <laughs> and kind of you, because that's all I keep thinking is what a jerk <laughs> the people. Yeah, I'm also talking. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm talking to you about it like 20 years uh, since it happened. Uh-huh. My, do- my daughter Lisa is now 34 years of age, continues to walk, um, continues to be healthy. And um, so time is a great healer for many things. And so I think I can approach these kinds of things in a different way. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I find that it's hard for me when doctors kind of quote unquote put me in my place as just a mom and that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I constantly want to be like, look, I do know what I'm talking about. Like there's a little, a little child in me that just comes out wanting to be like, I told you so. So Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first had concerns about Lisa and she was probably 14 months old, I went to our pediatrician and he said to me, I normally would tell you to wait until she was two because so many things you're describing, I think are typical development, but because it's you and I know your professional background, I'll give you a referral. So, so that kind of horrified me a little bit because I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. So that means 
other mothers are coming to you expressing concern about their children and you're essentially kicking the can down the road mm -hmm. and saying, well, you know, uh, you, you don't really know what you're talking about. Let's just give it time. When, you know, the mother heart or the father heart, the parent heart, the, our gut tells us so much. And there's so many times when we're asked to ignore those feelings and that intuition that really is like our North Star. It really, really can help lead us to what is right for our children. And so what I do, I, I continue to work as a speech pathologist and I continue, I teach graduate students in speech pathology. And it's been part of my mission to tell them to meet parents where they are and not to judge and to listen, really listen, listen to what they are saying and assume that what they are saying is correct unless you have overwhelming evidence, but that it is not. But on the face of it, respect mm -hmm. those parents. Oh, I love that. I love that you're teaching people that. Maybe we can change this doctor culture and have parents really be an advocate for their children. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. I think parents want to be, but they have to be respected as an equal team member. I mean, you know, in the, in the schools, the IEPs say, you know, the parent is an equal team member, as is the child. You know, they can attend their own IEP meeting. Um, but let's not just have that as words. Let let's let's live that as a reality. Reach, yeah, I love that. What it, what has your journey been like since? Like I know that we've had, like I know the diagnoses bring so much healing, and as cruddy as they are, um, they bring so much healing. Has has she continued to just stay the same, or develop, or regress in other areas? Yeah, Lisa actually has continued to develop and that has kind of defied the old literature about Rett syndrome and uh, the new literature is, is so much more inclusive of all individuals who have Rett syndrome because since they found the gene, the kind of the clinical picture of Rett syndromes changed a little bit in that individuals who are a little bit higher functioning, who previously would have been, been told, oh no, you don't have it. You're not meeting the clinical criteria. They are getting the right diagnosis because of the, uh, the genetic mutation that can be identified. So um, there's also a lot more optimism about potential. And I see this not just for Rett syndrome, but other complex uh, disabilities where children might be nonverbal or have limited verbal skills. And uh, the thinking was always, well, they weren't competent. They didn't understand anything. And I, I think we now know that just because someone cannot speak doesn't mean that they don't understand. And we need to treat them with respect, speak to them as if they understand everything, and then look for ways to help them communicate with you effectively. So as part of all of that, I um, started to do work in the area of Rett syndrome. So when Lisa was diagnosed, then um, 
not long after that, I entered a PhD program. I always had wanted to go in to continue my education. And I ended up studying communication and Rett syndrome for my dissertation, which then led me to do some publications and meet colleagues around the world and do some writing. And so I do, I think not all, but part of the work that I do professionally is dedicated to improving understanding of Rett syndrome, improving access to communication opportunities for individuals with Rett syndrome around the world. And so in a way, it has really, this, this diagnosis has done so much for me as a person, uh, given me these great uh, professional opportunities. And I've had, I've had this amazing ability to, to meet these people in other countries and to do, you know, a, a small amount of work, but to do some work in the right direction, I think, to, to really help uh, families understand their their daughters better, teachers and therapists to understand people with threats in them better. Um, and I, I should say, understand their daughters and sons, because it, we now know that Rett syndrome can affect boys as well. And I don't want to ignore them. But I feel like I've had these great opportunities. And um, it's not, and it's not just professional, I've also learned all these lessons about what is important, and how to find beauty and goodness in the struggle. Not that, you know, every day is all cheery and happy, <laughs> right? There's yeah. the reality of life. But Lisa continues to live with us. Uh, she's physically doing well. Um, I can see that she's a little more tired than she was when she was younger. But she uh, is engaged in the community. She gets physical therapy every week. She goes to yoga, she goes to an exercise class, she does a, a fellowship ministry at a church for individuals with disabilities. So she's, you know, she's, she's a light in our life and uh, we couldn't imagine life without her. I love that. Is she verbal now? No, she's not verbal. She's vocal. So she can yell and let you know what she wants. Um, she can use her hands pretty well for a girl with Rett syndrome. So she can pick things up and hand them to you. If she's done with whatever, say, is on her TV, she will stand up, go over to the remote, pick it up and give it to you. And that means change, you know, change the movie. Um, she does use a communication device where she can point to pictures on it, to icons, to let you know what she wants. She also can make choices if you hold things up for her um, and say, you know, do you want to eat this or that? She'll pick. Um, so we're very grateful for her hand use and also for the fact that she continues to be ambulatory, which is really good. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job. But maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home. Or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, 
that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. And so typically, like what that original doctor said that most girls cannot walk mm-hmm. at the age of 20, is that a typical thing? Or are we just now, like how has that changed from, I, I know the genetic testing and that now we realize that more people have Rett syndrome, mm-hmm. but is it still a typical characteristic that like you lose the ability to walk? Um, I would say no. What they used to think is that it was a regressive disorder so that you have an early period of regression and then you stabilize and then you regress again. In a, in a way, it was looked at as being a, a really a degenerative disorder. And now the evidence is clear that it is not degenerative. There are age-related changes that you can see as the people with Rett syndrome get older. I mean, it takes quite a toll on their bodies, and it affects multiple systems. So there's often difficulties with muscle tone, with gastrointestinal issues, with seizures, uh, with breathing problems. So many body systems are operating under stress. And so you see the toll that that takes on the body as they get older. But with improvements in medical care, people with Rett syndrome are living well into middle age now. And uh, actually, I hear of more and more people with Rett syndrome who are senior citizens. Really? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Uh, I think it speaks to uh, the advances that our society has made in terms of how we care for people with disabilities. Um, Usually they now remain in their home for a lot of their life. More and more people are remaining in their homes or if they're out of their homes, they're living in small group home situations. You know, here in the United States, Um, most of the institutions have been closed. So the family, the individuals were returned to their families or returned to small community oriented living situations, which I think give them much better medical and social care. Yeah. How much, I mean, this is kind of a, it feels like a ridiculous question, but I'm, I'm curious how much just that viewpoint of, like, hey, this is a de- degenerate disorder and you're going to keep declining. And so parents are like, okay, well, we're hopeless. And then switching that framework to like, hey, there's hope. They can make progress. They can do these things. And then parents having that hope. Like, do you believe that some of that is at play here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen it with individuals with Rett syndrome, but also other people. I have worked most of my career with individuals with, say, Down syndrome. And I remember when I first started working, uh, many families were told, don't even bring your baby with Down syndrome home. Just send them into an institution. Mm-hmm. Now, with this sense of that this is a, a disorder that, yes, it is very challenging, but they can learn because they, they also used to think that 
individuals with Down syndrome stopped learning like after age 12. And that's just not true. We, we see evidence of improvements in communication, vocabulary. They can learn vocational skills. You can now see people with Down syndrome uh, working in all kinds of jobs, um, attending college. It's, it, it's incredible. And I think we've seen a real shift in the last, like, say, 40 years in terms of how we value life and how we have a sense of optimism. Mm-hmm. You know, a big change was federal law in the 1970s that said that every child was entitled to a free, appropriate public education. And that changed, I think, the trajectory of life for so many people. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating how just mind shifts can change a culture and change. I mean, and that's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it really changed. It changes everything because then the doctors are going to take perhaps a more aggressive approach. Um, here's an example. Our daughter, I think when she was 12, so a year after our, her diagnosis, uh, she started to develop scoliosis. And what I had read was that scoliosis in rat syndrome can uh, progress very quickly. And we saw that with her in less than nine months, she went from a straight spine to a 45 degree curve. Oh. And it was just not stopping. And we took her to a surgeon, local, local surgeon, highly regarded, who'd never seen anybody with Rett syndrome before. And he said to us, oh, yeah, this is probably going to get worse. And it's going to affect her lungs and her heart because the spine turning and moving kind of inward could can compress the organs of the trunk and she would lose her ability to walk. And he said, you know, I'm really concerned about how this is going to play out, but I don't think she's going to be a good post-operative patient because she's not going to understand that she can't get up. She has to lay flat. So, okay, let's, let's just wait. Why don't you come back in three months? And we were like, what are you talking about? This is, This is an emergent situation. This is not going to get better. In three months, it's going to be worse. And the worse it is, the harder it is to fix. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't think she's going to be a good candidate for surgery. So his sense was, I could see. She's got red syndrome. She's really complex. I don't really want to touch it. We went to another surgeon at a children's hospital uh, in a neighboring state, because right away I got on, I got online to my community and, and years ago then we had um, like an email distribution list that parents could talk to, uh, to each other on. And, uh, and I said, help, help, I need help. I need another doctor. And I got a name of a surgeon and he, he spoke with great respect for his colleague when he saw my daughter, but he said, we got to fix this and we got to do it now. And he said, we need to manage her pain. That's the thing that will make her have a better outcome. And we went to a wonderful children's hospital, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and they had a great pain team. And she never cried when she was in the hospital. And she had her entire spine fused and she still walks to this day. And it's because we had a surgeon who looked at her with optimism and said, 
yeah, we need to keep you walking. We need to keep you healthy. So we're going to treat you. It was great. Yeah, that speaks volumes of just the difference in doctors. Yep. Yep. And why your mama heart or your daddy heart or your intuition has to has to be the, the thing that leads you. Because I remember sitting in the car with my husband as we left that doctor's office, feeling so defeated. It was as, as, as if we got a death sentence. And by the time we got home, I was mad. I was like, no, 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 no. She's not dying now. We are not giving her a death sentence. She's 12. She's got more life to live. It's worth a try. But it's hard. It's hard, when, especially when the professionals are telling you, eh, maybe not. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I have so many thoughts. I'm just going to keep them to myself about your professionals <laughs> there. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so... Do you feel like, like I see you now and you're like, okay, this Rett syndrome advocate teaching, educating, all of those things. Do you feel like that you reached a point where you're like, okay, I'm done advocating because now everyone, I have my people and here we are and they all know what to do with her. And, or is it like a constant daily thing? Um, I, I feel very like I, feel like I'm constantly having to educate people and it's so weary. Like it makes me so weary, you know? And so I'm just curious if you ever reach a point where we don't have to do that anymore. Cause I would like to get to that point. I don't, sorry. <laughs> I don't want like, no, there's not I, really. could, I think there's still so much room for things to get better. Mm-hmm. I think what helps me is sitting where I am and turning back and looking back. So the long view helps. If you sit and just reflect on where you are and then look back and remember where you've come from, I think that can feel really powerful. Uh, You can feel really strong. You can feel really positive. If If you focus on the loss We can feel very empty. We can feel very angry. But if we focus on what we have and what we have gained, I think that changes our mindset. And this is, this is kind of, kind of where I feel like I am now that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to talk to parents about reframing what we have. Because believe me, You would have never wanted to be my kid's speech therapist, my kid's teacher when she was young and she was going through her diagnosis because I was awful. (laughs) I either went to a speech, I, I mean, I was a speech therapist and I'm watching other people do speech therapy with my kid. And I was so in the grief. I couldn't believe I'm sitting there on the other side of the table that this has happened to her, to us. I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm stressed. I used to go into her speech therapy sessions and her early intervention sessions with a cup of coffee and my sunglasses because I would sit on the floor and watch them, you know, because it was family-centered, so I was part of it. And I was either crying, like just sobbing to myself behind my sunglasses and my coffee, or 
I was so mad because I didn't think they knew what they were doing. And it really was because I was still grieving. I was still in the midst of coming to terms with the sense that the life that I had thought we were going to live was not going to be the life that we had and that I had to come to some kind of way to reconcile my ideal of what we were going to live with the reality. Hmm. And so I was fighting against that. Um, And I had to go through that. It's like the stages of grief. You grieving the loss of the typical child, but you love this child. And so you, you have new dreams that you create. You have a new life that you come to and it can really get you angry at certain times. It is not Pollyanna. I mean, it's really hard. I'm close to retirement and I am still changing diapers. I still don't sleep through the night. I will never have an empty nest ever. I have friends who are, you know, they have empty nests. They can just go somewhere. If I'm planning a vacation, the complexity of that, if we either take our daughter with us or we leave her home, both of those are really complex. And my, my peers don't have any life. Their lives are so different. But if I focus on what I've lost compared to them, I'll be an angry, bitter person. I'll be less of a person and I'll be, I won't be the best mother I can be to my daughter. And we get one life. So I am trying to choose to live in happiness and peace and acceptance, but also recognizing that I think I'm supposed to do some work with everybody else to try to make this better. So you're just living out your calling. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, yeah, I was like, wait, I, I, okay. Hello. I don't want this calling. I'll pick a different one, but you know, I've got, I, I, I'm liking what I'm doing. If, if, isn't that crazy? It's, it's like, I, it's funny how you come to that. I want to look back at that younger woman 30 years ago and just tell her it's going to be okay. It's gonna, you'll be happy. And you don't have to wait 30 years. It's going to come sooner. Yeah. I love that so much. Well, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and the advocacy that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. For educating others and educating speech therapists and parents and, and being a safe place for them. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for this. I mean, this is, this is a great outlet. I think the more there are of us telling our very different stories, building community, that's so important. We, we all need to know that we are not alone and we share more than we differ. Mm-hmm. Yes. Will you tell people where they can find you? Sure. So um, I have a website, TeresaBartolotta.com. And um, I also host a podcast, Safe Harbor Podcast, a podcast for parents of children with disabilities and the people who love them. And uh, so you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, if you want to get on my mailing list, please send me an email at safeharborpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Teresa Bartolotta. And um, I post 
you know, when I do an update. And I'm also moving into things like putting courses together mm-hmm. for it. Uh, and one of the first things that I'm doing, and I'm about to get it going, is um, just a little mini course for parents of children who are older or about to be older because there's so much fear around things like planning for, um, you know, what will happen when, you know, we are a little bit challenged in taking care of our, our children. And so I, I'm always trying to figure out how we can tamp down the fear. And a lot of that is with information and communication. So folks, if anybody's interested in that, you can follow me on Instagram or send me an email and you'll hear about that or look at my website. That's such a great resource. Way to go. Thank you for putting that out there. Cause yeah, for those of us that are going to have kids in our home for the rest of our lives, it's kind of like, it's very, it's a whole different way of thinking of everything. So. Yes, it is. And life, you know, goes so fast and, um, you know, we need to have these conversations. We need to to talk about those kinds of issues and like the future. We need without fear. And if you can start to talk about it, that fear just goes, starts to go away. The anxiety starts to lessen. And it's just so much healthier for us if we can lower our stress levels because we we all live, we are living in stress and that's not healthy for our bodies and our minds. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Very grateful. Oh, Laura, thanks for the invitation. It was so fun to come on here. I really appreciate our conversation today. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.